Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's pod, our guest will be MTV's Anna Marie Cox, who is also the host of the brand new Crooked Media podcast with Friends Like These that launches tomorrow. With Friends Like These is a show about what divides us. And we're going to talk to Anna Marie a little bit more about the new podcast that we are very excited about. Good stuff, Dan. Isn't she really Crooked Media's Anna Marie Cox now? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how MTV would feel about that, but sure, we'll say that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's our podcast. We can do what we want. Yeah, we can say what we want here. Also, uh, everyone, if in case you missed it yesterday, tune into this week's Pod Save the World. Tommy has Lisa Monaco on the show. She was our uh, counterterrorism advisor in the uh, Obama administration, and so she's going to uh, scare the shit out of you. So give that give that a good listen. Yeah, I had uh, drinks with Lisa Monaco when she was in San Francisco last week, and oh. it was the day before uh, Harward uh, dropped out. And she was like, ah, he's great. I feel good about this. And then two <laughs> hours later, I felt less good. Oh, that's, that is sad. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right, Dan. All right, let's do this. Let's do this. So, uh, question. Has the pivot finally arrived? I hate asking that question. I can't even do it seriously because I don't think the pivot has arrived. But I will. No, of course not. <laughs> I will say that some of our um, some of our pundit friends based in Washington have uh, have said this this week. They, they've pointed to evidence that maybe uh, maybe the Trump administration has turned a corner. What do you think? Do you know what the evidence is? Trump has tweeted less. Yes, that I was is their evidence. The, the, the evidence is he only sent two crazy tweets this week, one about Swedish immigration that ended with a not joke and one that was based on a Fox News segment about the town hall meetings. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's a step in the right direction, which is his two crazy tweets this week are two more than any president has previously sent. Ever. That's true. I mean, yeah. he also um, I guess the, you could you could point to the appointment of Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster as the uh, as the new national security advisor, as something that is, I mean, you know, he removed someone that was completely fucking crazy from the job, uh, General Michael Flynn, and uh, and replaced him with, uh, you know, someone who is 
by all accounts, non-ideological, you know, praised by a lot of the Republicans who've had worries about Trump, like McCain, General Mattis likes him, um, and he's supposed to be reorganizing the National Security Council so that, you know, the director of national intelligence and CIA, their positions on, on principles committee meetings are restored. They're, you know, uh, so... I don't know. I guess that it's somewhat hopeful. It probably reduces the chance that we all die in a nuclear apocalypse by maybe a percentage point or two. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're grasping at straws here. Look, I think I think what is true is it feels like the last the four weeks prior to this is four weeks. I guess that's how long it's been. Seemed insane. Like every two minutes, something crazy was happening. Trump was tweeting something. Kellyanne Conway was making up. You know, mass massacres. Um, <laughs> Steve Bannon was joining the National Security Council. Like something crazy happened every ten minutes, and it was fucking exhausting. This week has felt like more normal-ish. You know, have we been normalized to the point that like Trump insanity now feels okay? I don't know, but like I think the McMaster thing is good news. Like, has anyone ever been more appropriately named for the job than? H.R. McMaster. Um, <laughs> so that's good. I do think it's worth pointing out. You're, you know, you mentioned the reorganizing of the reorganizing of the... Um, yeah, the NSC. The National Security Council. Great and, story. And did you see that story in the New York Times last night talking about how we ended up in this place? Yes. they, re- they The Trump administration reorganized the NSC by accident. <laughs> yes. Yes, they did. Because by they, they basically cutting saw, and pasting yeah, the, yeah. the Bush org chart, which is interesting, which that would seem to make sense unless you forget that that was done before 9-11 when the Depart- the Director of National Intelligence and the Department of Homeland Security did not exist. Right. I mean, it's just, it's such an interesting window, right? It's like, obviously, the organization of the National Security Council by Obama must have been wrong. Let's not even look at it. Let's just go right, right back to the Bush administration one, even though it's like 15, 20 <coughs> years in the past, you know? Um, so yeah, so that was crazy. I mean, look, I think I don't, I don't give them any credit for this week at all. Uh, I think what they're trying to do is the PR people in the administration, the communications people, the Kellyanne Conways, the people who'd think about politics, they, uh, probably recognized the gross incompetence of the last month and thought, you know, can at least, can we at least put on a better, can we put a better foot forward in terms of like, you know, our messaging and our politics and restraining the president of the United States from saying crazy shit this week. Um, so we can go about our, so we can push our, continue to push our agenda, which is by no means moderated or, you know, pulled back or anything else. So, um, I mean, like they sent him to the, you know, he went to the Museum of African American History and Culture, um, where he said slavery, man, that was a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. um, that makes me laugh so much and then uh, and then he he denounced anti-semitism um because all those uh that graveyard had been desecrated and you know it took like a day for everyone to say why isn't the president of the white house condemning this and then you know trump finally did when he was asked so good i don't pence went to the cemetery and cleaned up so that's good um but it's like you know, I think, first of all, I think it's taking all of their, it's taking all the effort they have to do this, right? Like it's taking all their restraint to sort of put on a normal face for a couple of days. And, um, there was a great story in Politico about how they, how they do this. Uh, the story is headlined, how Trump's campaign staffers tried to keep him off Twitter. The trick, making sure his media diet included a healthy dose of praise. Did you read that story? Oh, I did. I did. I mean, <laughs> it's basically a description of how you manage a poorly behaved eight-year-old. I mean, exactly. I mean, I think that was the intention of how they wrote it, um, <laughs> because it's it's the, the similarities between Trump and an eight-year-old child in this story are so strong. Um, and it's not, you know, look, it's not fake news. They had six former campaign officials speak for this story, many of them on the record. Um, and basically what they said is when, during the campaign, whenever a bad story about Trump would hit, uh, the campaign would then plant the good version of that story in publications like Breitbart, Fox News, Washington Examiner, and The Daily Caller. 
And then once they got their exact story that they wanted in one of those publications, they would then bring the story to Trump and show him. Uh, And they knew that they could sort of influence him because Trump doesn't read any news online. He only reads the print edition of the New York Times and watches cable news. That is the extent of his diet, unless uh, his uh, news diet, unless one of his staffers brings in a printed out copy of one of the stories they have placed in a friendly publication. I have to say I'm a little jealous of that. Like, I know. if we could have managed Barack Obama's media diet that way, uh, if I could just have controlled what he saw by based on what I brought to his desk, that would have been awesome. Instead, he had an iPad and access to the internet, like also, most adults, so he could read news. I know he did. That, that everyone, yeah, he, uh, President Obama. By the time he got his iPad, you could say he would he would be like looking online and seeing like the most read stories, and you know, every, you would probably hear about it more than I would, Dan. But if there was a story that displeased him, he would let you know. Uh, he he would, or if he had questions about it, I was. You know how uh, President Obama would get, as all presidents do, would get movies on before the release, so we could watch them in the home yes. in the home theater. Mm-hmm. I was pretty convinced for a while there that he had a deal with the New York Times where he also got the news before it was released because the time between when it posted and when I would hear from him sometimes was so short that it seemed it seemed physically impossible. Specifically David Brooks columns, I believe. Uh, I, don't even, I don't even know. I don't even know who that is. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, no, I mean, I thought you were going to say you were jealous because, look, people can make arguments on the right that there's a, a liberal bias to some media outlets. Right. But. Even even a even a media outlet like the Huffington Post, you could not have called Sam Stein and said, "Hey Sam, uh, there's all been all these bad stories about Obama doing something. Can you write a good one? Uh, and just here, I'm just going to dictate to you what we want to say, and then Sam runs the story, and then you bring it to Obama. Like, could you imagine that happening? No, I mean it's a, there. It is absolutely impossible. This is one of the uh, real challenges about being a progressive is that we don't have. Uh, like a propaganda machine, like the Republicans do. Uh, like they literally own. Except Breitbart. of course, the guy who owns course, Breitbart podcast, right? sits down the hall from uh, from Donald Trump and was basically they were Trump media for the entire campaign. And you know, we certainly had there were lots like you can make lots of arguments, particularly in 08, We got a lot of favorable coverage, and I think we also got scrutiny in investigative stories, but we had nothing like we had, there's no one I've ever known I could call until to say, Hey, the boss is kind of grumpy. Could you write a story about it so I can show it to him? And then he'll probably tweet it out, which would be good for your traffic, which I mean, is why you went informed crooked media. I assume that's, good. that's what I said. <laughs> Look, next democratic administration, just call us up. We'll write up. I mean, we're too lazy to write up the story these days. We'll probably just talk about it on a podcast, you know, um, <laughs> and, that, and that'll be that. No, even, even we won't do that here. Um, my other, uh, the other best quote from that Politico story was, leaving him alone for several hours can prove damaging because he consumes too much television. <laughs> like, that is such a, a, a both, it's funny and also scary. Like, who's watching the president? He's watching, too, <laughs> he's watching too much television and he might start a war. I mean, it's bad. It's, it's also, we live in an era of great television. There is more good TV to watch than we possibly have time for. Yeah. Like, if you have all these extra hours, I don't know, watch The Young Pope. Right. Do something. Do not just, <laughs> like, mainline Sean Hannity in your brain know. for eight hours a day. Um, it is just... Whew. But anyway, apparently this this has worked for this week, maybe? I don't know. I don't, I don't even think you can say that it worked this week. Like, he's, it's still pretty bad, you know? Uh, and also, yeah, I just think great. like you can't be you can't be waiting around and saying like, okay, Trump hasn't done anything crazy for like 24 hours. Maybe this is a sign of something. Like it's like fucking Charlie Brown with the football. You know, like how many times have we gone down this path before where people think you know if something crazy doesn't happen in a couple of days that it means you know that they've turned over some new leaf in the White House? Come on. Yeah, it's like remember when like I you can, usually the periods of calm with Trump are followed by the craziest shit ever. It's like Trump seems like he's got his shit together. Oh, I don't know. Let's pick a fight with the the father of a deceased U.S. service member. Right. It's, right. You know, he. I think he's really he's the nominee now. I think he's really you know he's going to start pivoting to the center. 
oh, let's go on a racist 10-day campaign against an American-born judge, right? Like, right. like something, something is coming, right? There's mm-hmm. a good chance it could be tomorrow when he speaks at CPAC. There's a good chance it could be right now while we're on this podcast. That's right. I have Twitter up, so it is not happening at this exact minute, <laughs> but between now and when you guys listen to it, there's a good chance things are going off the rails. I did see that during the uh, the, the the pool spray at the top of the manufacturing meeting with CEOs this morning, uh, Trump started by asking Jeff Immelt to tell the story about the time that they were golfing together and Trump got a hole in one. <laughs> Just, hey, you. Hey, you. I brought you here. Tell that story about the time I was cool. Um, so, but there's, in, in all seriousness, there is a lot of evidence that nothing has changed. And in fact, some of the actual policy moves the Trump administration is making um, are, you know, are, are only are just getting worse. Um, there's no new travel ban this week. They delayed the announcement of the uh, the revised travel ban. Um, but the reports are that basically the only thing that's changing in that ban is that they're probably going to exempt green card holders, make sure that no one's caught up, you know, while they're traveling to the United States. And, um, you know, they're not going to explicitly say that you can't accept Syrian refugees, but in practice, you know, they'll still probably slow it down to uh, to, to nearly a, a trickle or to nothing. Um, so the ban's not getting much better. Uh, a story about uh, the Department of Homeland Security preparing to carry out Trump's executive order on deportations was uh, fairly horrifying, what's going on there. Um, yeah. Basically, it used to be that only undocumented immigrants convicted of serious crimes would be deported. Now, just about every undocumented immigrant is at risk uh, of being deported, and we're seeing these raids all over the country. Um, Trump administration plans to spend more taxpayer dollars on a larger deportation force, maybe up to 100,000 more ICE agents. They want to spend more money on detention facilities. They want to enlist local police officers as enforcers, and they want to speed up deportation so that there's no trial first. Pretty bad shit. Pretty bad. Also, they want to send everyone back to Mexico, even if they're not from Mexico. I mean. <laughs> so it's like, if, if we're just going to send you to the closest country that has fewer white people, and we're going to drop you off there. And Secretary of State Tillerson and Secretary of Homeland Security Kelly went to Mexico yesterday. And Sean Spicer gets up at the briefing, which everyone, by the way, said is his best briefing ever. Sean Spicer at the briefing said, we have phenomenal relations with Mexico. And then there's all these stories that they got a horrible reception when they got to Mexico. And Mexico said, absolutely not what we take uh, we take your deportations that aren't even Mexican citizens. Yeah. <laughs> so was phenomenal that also the briefing relations, where Sean. Sean Spicer got in an argument with the Anne Frank Center? I, I, I didn't hear this whole story. Please please tell me what happened here. <laughs> so the Anne Frank Center was particularly critical of Trump's response to anti-Semitism, you know, including what happened at the, at the cemetery in St. Louis. And, John, and Sean Spicer was basically attacked them for not being more complimentary of Trump's long-time efforts to fight anti-Semitism. <laughs> I think Sean Spicer is confusing Trump's efforts to fight anti-Semitism with hiring an anti-Semite as his chief White House strategist. I mean, God, poor Sean. Sean. No, poor Sean. (laughs) Not poor Sean. He chose this life. Yeah, no, not poor Sean at all. Um, But the the deportation thing is really scary. I mean, the story yesterday had a, a woman from El Salvador who was diagnosed with a brain tumor under the custody of Immigrations and Custom Enforcement, was dragged out of a Texas hospital and returned to a detention center. I mean, you know, I saw this this morning. Trump was like, we're getting a lot of bad dudes out of this country. Like, oh, is that is that the bad dude that you're trying to get out of this country? I, I just, I don't know what to do about this, what people can do about this, because, you know, the, the President of the United States does have a lot of latitude on who he can deport. Um, and And just a lot of latitude over immigration laws in general. So... You know, I think we got to keep publicizing these stories because if people think that these deportations are anything like the deportations that went on under the Obama administration, which, look, we deported a lot of people. Um, We tried to narrow the deportations to people who committed serious criminal offenses. Now you're seeing like parents ripped apart from their children and, you know, the domestic abuse victim who walked into a courtroom to report domestic abuse and then she was detained in the courtroom because her abuser tipped off ICE. I mean, this is just 
awful. Did you? I like. I'm about to do something uh, I should not do, but I'm just going to repeat what I saw on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But there were Twitter reports about um, <clears throat> customs agents checking people's IDs getting off a, f- a domestic flight. I think it was from L.A. to New York or New York to San Francisco, whatever. San Francisco it was. to New York, and it was the, the people who reported it were two Vice News reporters. So yeah. you know, it's not just like random Twitter user X. Um, yeah, I don't know what that was about. But like, where, how, where have we come that we are now checking people's papers as they, like, if you don't want to show your papers, you just have to stay on the plane forever and fly back to New York. Like, like yeah. I think you're right. The only thing, like, this is in part a battle for hearts and minds here, right? The right Trump and Bannon and the the Breitbart nationalist movement are trying to define immigration and immigrants as this nefarious thing of, you know, the use of Trump words, rapists, gang members, people who are taking your jobs, who are committing crimes in your community. And that, that is not the case. That is not what this is about. And it's not who we're talking about, right? In their, in their definition, refugees are ISIS sleeper cells. And in not, you know, women and children fleeing violence and oppression. And it's incumbent upon all of us to engage in that battle, publicize these stories, let everyone know who are the people of, who are the victims of, of these policy changes um, in the hopes that we can change hearts and minds now and change policy later by winning elections. Yeah, because I mean, look, they, they do know, they do understand that um, mass deportations are not politically popular. And even among people, look, you know, Obama always used to start just about every immigration speech by saying we're a nation of laws and a nation of immigrants, right? And we do have to respect the laws that we have about immigration in this country. Um, but this idea that, you know, I, I think it is it is somewhat pop, probably the wall or probably at least increased border security is more popular um, when you pull it than these mass deportations, which are extremely unpopular. Um, I think it was something like, you know, there was a Fox News poll about this that was like, I don't know, 17% of people said you should deport as many undocumented immigrants as possible. And the vast majority said you should provide them some pathway to citizenship if they pay a fine, go to the back of the line, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so people don't want just completely open borders in this country and, and to, you know, just have everyone come in here who wants to. But at the same time, People recognize that if you've been in this country for a long, long time and you've been working hard and contributing to the country and everything, like they don't, you shouldn't be deported. And especially like parents shouldn't be ripped away from their children. You know, it's just, it's not a, they have to keep saying that the people they're deporting are criminals and hardened criminals because they know that telling the truth about who they're deporting is not popular at all. Yeah. It's also just as one note of hypocritical comedy that, uh, at the same time Trump's uh, government is cracking down on immigration, Trump Wineries is fi- has filed an application with the Department of Labor to get permission to hire more people, more immigrants. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it's possible that Trump may not be on the level on this, right? Yeah, yeah, it it, it is possible. <laughs> Who knows? I'm just gonna you know? go out on a limb. Yeah, just go on a limb. Uh, the other the other policy they announced this week or announced last night really was um, the Trump administration. Well, the Department of Justice, the new Jeff Sessions Department of Justice, uh, has rescinded a federal policy created by Obama that said <clears throat> school districts must protect transgender students. Um, this is another one that like, and apparently even. Betsy DeVos, because the the order has to come from the Department of Education. Apparently, Betsy DeVos did not want to do this. And Jeff Sessions overruled her or convinced her to go along with this. And um, and yeah, and so now this is there's another thing. You know, everyone's like, oh, Trump won because of uh, jobs and the economy, right? Uh, yeah, no. Well, this is so one of his first moves is to rescind protections of transgender students so that they can go to school and, uh, and in a safe environment. Yeah. Okay. Good job, buddy. Yeah. Remember all the pieces about how Trump, because he was a rich 
guy from Manhattan was going to be the most LGBT friendly Republican ever. Right. Yeah. And look, yeah. He, this this order was rescinded, and uh, you know, Jared and Ivanka weren't even uh, <laughs> weren't even in Shabbat. Right. They were just they were there in the White House. I thought Jared and Ivanka were supposed to be the big heroes protecting LGBT community. You know. The people who refer to them as Javanka is one of my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that yet. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, but the, the, I think the larger question here between the so-called pivot and the fact of the policy that they're pushing anyway is, like, what do Democrats do in response? Because if there is a new strategy in the Trump White House that they are going to try to put a better public face on the very right-wing react you know uh reactionary sort of uh, racist sexist whatever uh policies that they're pushing like how do we respond you know Hmm. how do we respond Um, (laughs) i think part of it is we can't let our guard down right right like trump has so dumbed down what it's acceptable in the White House, right? Where we were, we've been afraid for a long time that we are moments away from a nuclear war or like a military confrontation in the South China Sea or, you know, just absolutely anything that can happen, pissing off Canada. Like a week where Trump does not yell at one of our top allies, you know, <laughs> joke, joke about another war in Iraq to take, to take oil. Um, you know, it's not a week that is good, right? It's like what what matters are things like the immigration policy changes he's making, the rule around transgendered students, um, the efforts around repealing ACA, like have to, you know, we can't take our foot off the gas in terms of, uh, we can't, yeah. you know, our fear and outrage and urgency. And, you know, I think that's what you're seeing in these town halls, but you can see a world where, crazy things start feeling sane and we relax and go back to normal. And I don't think we can go back to normal for four years, right? We can't go back to normal. I also think it's, we have to focus on the policies, right? Which is, you know, it's the, it's the less sexy thing to do, right? Because what makes headlines is a Trump tweet or Trump saying something crazy or, you know, palace intrigue and what's happening with Kellyanne Conway and the crazy thing Sean Spicer does and all things that we joke about and talk about all the time on this podcast. But I think the, the key is to really focus on the policies that he's pushing, the actions that he takes, what Trump does, what his administration does, and the effects that those decisions have on the lives of real people. And um, that it's a little harder to do that, to dig through the news and find those things and to sort of lift them up and talk about them and argue about them than just sort of you know, what's on Twitter or what the headlines of the day are. But if if they're going to improve their PR and communications messaging political operation, um, which I'm still very doubtful of, but if they do improve that, then it's going to be incumbent upon the rest of us to really pay attention to the policy moves. Yeah, we have to step up our game. And I think the question for folks like us, but also the people who are showing up in town halls, is how like is focusing on how what Trump does and says affects real people, right? Like, yeah. and making that point. That's the difference between Trump wants us to focus on optics and we have to focus on substance, right? So it's that or wants to focus on style. We want to focus on substance to make that slightly more pithy. Um, and that's going to be hard because it's not what the press wants to cover, but they will cover people showing up at a town hall and making an impassioned case for ACA. Right. And so great. A great segue like to our did, town hall segment. Dan. That, that was that was the goal. I'm so inspired by your square cash segues every week that I'm really trying to step up my game. <laughs> um, so one update from us, uh, almost eighteen hundred of you have signed up at resistancerecesscom slash crooked uh, for town hall events, which is fantastic. And uh, as a reminder, there are more than 300 events to come before Sunday. So this is not done yet. Um, and we've seen a lot of these, uh, the stories this week from these town halls have been great. Uh, some senators, some senators and congressmen have had to move the town hall locations many times because so many people have shown up. I saw that Tom Cotton, who we'll get to in a, in a second, his, uh, his town hall last night was moved five different times. Um, some people said it was to, uh, just to try to fool his constituents so they wouldn't show up. <laughs> Other people said that it was also to just accommodate the, the larger requests. 
Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. So here are some of my favorite stories from the town hall. A couple people tweeted at us their sign that they've been putting up all over Florida that just says missing. Floridian Marco Rubio, have you seen me? Because Rubio refuses to hold a town hall, which I love. Um, Is there anything less surprising than Marco Rubio nothing. being too big of a coward to face his constituents and have to defend his pitiful, slobbering support of Donald Trump? He will, he will never do that. All he'll do is just hide. He's hiding on the Senate floor and tweeting. That's about all that Marco <laughs> Rubio can do. Um, there's some folks in Orange County, California, who uh, sent us a picture of the town hall they organized because their congressman refused to come. Uh, and then there's some of the clips we saw on TV. The woman yelling at Mitch McConnell, um, which was great. There was an uh, older uh, white guy yelling at Chuck Grassley. Didn't seem like a liberal activist to me. Um <laughs> And then, uh, and then I love that some of the reaction from some of these Republicans uh, at the town halls, like Jason Chaffetz, uh, is complaining this morning about uh, the, an attempt to intimidate and bully him at these town halls. Poor Jason Chaffetz. It must be so hard for him. Oh, so sad. I mean, Jason Chaffetz, can we just take a pause on him for a second? Please. Can we he's flash just, I, back I said this morning, too. To... He's vaulted to the top of my list above Paul Ryan and Marco Rubio as the Republican uh, with the least courage, I think, in Congress <laughs> right now. Let's flash back to October of last year during the election when the Billy Bush, Donald Trump, grab him by the pussy tape came out. I, I remember Jason that. Jason Chaffetz gave an impassioned explanation of how he could no longer support Trump because he could not look his wife and daughters in the eyes if he were to do that. Weeks later, Jason Chaffetz re-endorsed Donald Trump and has been carrying water for him, including instead of investing as the head of the government oversight, instead of investigating all the damaging information that's come out, he wants to investigate the leakers who released the damaging information. It's not good. Not good at all. Did you see also that, how um, awkward did, are the family dinners at the Chaffetz house when he does not look anyone at the table in the eyes? <laughs> did you see that um, uh, reports that our our friend of the pod Evan McMullen might challenge him? Which I know. I'm excited about that. I'm gonna. We said that on we we encouraged that here on Pod Save America a couple of weeks ago. So I'll, I'd like to say that we launched this, but you know, well, I won't. <clears throat> I don't want to. Uh, tell you your business, but it's probably not going to be super helpful for Evan McMullen and his Republican <laughs> primary challenge in, in Utah. I don't know that, don't know that many to, Republican primary voters in Utah are listening right now, but if you are, <laughs> don't take our word for it, guys. I know. Yeah. I know we're not great. Um, yeah, so Shavitz is very worried that he's he's being intimidated and bullied by his own constituents. I think there was like a 10-year-old girl who asked him a question at one of these town halls, so that must have been very scary for him. Um, and then Louis <laughs> Gohmert from Texas uh, said he won't hold, a, won't, won't hold a town hall because someone might get hurt. He's worried about it because uh, oh. he's worried about the leftists. 
Yeah. I, I understand that. That makes sense. Special, yes, democracy special, is very dangerous. Special snowflake Louis Gohmert. What a, that's a, such a beta move, you know? I don't, can, can we, I don't really understand the snowflake thing. What is that supposed to mean? I don't either. I think, I think, I think um, like Breitbart, the Breitbart crowd, the alt-right crowd, whoever the fuck they are, they always called us liberal snowflakes, I guess, because we're so you know precious and scared like a snowflake i guess i don't know are we you know, one, are we one of a kind is that what they mean i don't know if it's one of a kind or it's just <laughs> like you know you get snowflakes are fragile fragile i think what we're trying to say we're fragile oh i say i say these, these are the people these are the people who can't show up at town halls now because they're too this is like you know like sebastian gorka the national security guy who um, who called up and threatened a lawsuit against some random republican because they were uh, tweeting bad things about him <laughs> oh, so so sad, Mr. Gorka. So sad. <laughs> um, anyway, so what do you think about the um, what do you think about these town halls and like people getting angry and and yelling at their members of Congress? Like, do you think this is you think this is helpful? Not helpful? Well, I personally love it. <laughs> I Same. watch every clip. Like Brad Jaffe of NBC News. Um, I've retweeted said, every single one of his clips. Yeah, so he tweets <laughs> out. He kind of collects these clips and has been tweeting them out. And I watch all of them. I watched some of that Chaffetz Town Hall on a live stream last week. Like, I am addicted to this. It's it is the most fun television that I, I have. I am to that what Trump is to Fox News, and <laughs> and so I think like I, I enjoy it. I think it's great. It's it's a little bit of a surreal experience because I remember in um, 2009 us believing that these town halls of these angry people screaming at the members of Congress was politically bad for them yeah um that turned out not to be the case so i guess we don't have to worry about that um the one thing that i think is interesting is in 2009 the overwhelming bulk of those version of the of the clips were centered around aca mm-hmm. right it was all about opposing aca and being angry that the government was going to give all this money away and we couldn't afford it and all these things all this sort of wrong information but it was very focused on that and almost sank the bill when you watch these clips now, it is like the overall message is anger about Trump, right? It is yeah. less policy, specific policy focus. Like there's a lot of really powerful ACA ones. The woman um, who confronted Tom Cotton, also not a particularly favorite Republican of ours, um, about how her husband had, was dying and they needed health care and pressured him on what health insurance he had. Like there's a lot of that, but there's also – the seven-year-old asking questions about climate change. There's a lot of Russia, like a really a lot of like, will you investigate Russia? Right. You know, a lot of the refugee stuff. And so it's a little bit of a mishmash. And I don't know exactly how I feel about that yet. Or does it concern you at all? Um, I It doesn't because I guess I have seen the overwhelming number of clips that I've seen and stories that I've read have been ACA focused. Like, I feel like the media has been packaging these as town hall protests about the Affordable Care Act. I've definitely heard some of the Russia stuff come through. Um, and I've heard just general anti-Trump stuff. I I have been mostly impressed. Like in, in 2009, there were a lot of signs like, you know, about death panels and Obama is, you know, uh, government takeover of our health care and and worse, right? The Tea Party signs are pretty pretty rough. And look, there's some there's some pretty uh, pretty tough signs about Trump out there right now too. But I've been enormously impressed with these town hall questioners knowing like detailed policy, you know, information about the Affordable Care Act. Like the questions have been very specific. They're about, you know, specific provisions of the bill. People have looked up what, like, health savings accounts are, which is Republicans are proposing uh, to replace some of these subsidies. And and people have realized that health savings accounts are bullshits because you have to be rich in the first place to be able to put away money in a health savings account. So I've been very impressed with the knowledge at these town hall meetings. I do agree overall, whether it's at these town halls or not, that Democratic message at some point can't just be, we hate Trump. It's just that it's not going to work, right? Like we need to have – we need to attack specific policies and then provide solutions of our own. I, I, I do you know, genuinely believe that. And there needs to be some focus, right? Um, I think you – know, I don't think letting up on the Russia thing is a good idea because I think th- there's some serious questions that are unanswered here. But um, 
I think that, you know, talking about bread and butter issues, talking about issues that affect people's lives uh, in their everyday lives is important. You know, we got we got to we got to hit that hard. I, you know, I think people like you and I um, sort of even though we're no longer Washington based political operatives, but we were at one time have to resist the urge to script this mm-hmm. over organize it like this is what is going to work here is organic grassroots enthusiasm, you know, yeah. that the, like the, the solution to the democratic party's problems, both at the ballot box and how we deal with Trump is going to come bottoms up, not top down and outside in, not inside out when you think about Washington. And so, yeah, like if, as a communications professional, I would love to like write out seven, focus group poll tested arguments that I know work with this sliver of voters I found in our data who we can move from Trump to Democrats in the midterms and give them to everyone and have them go do that. But that that's not how the world works anymore. <clears throat> and it wouldn't be effective yeah. even if we we're not able to do that. And even if we could, it wouldn't work. And so I think we have to let this play itself out. Right. And it's mm-hmm. like Democratic leaders have to respond to this and help steer it in a electoral direction as we get closer to actual elections where people vote. And, but we have to, the biggest task for Democrats is not to try to control the democratic um, enthusiasm out there, but more to become worthy vessels for that enthusiasm when it gets to election day. I completely agree. I, I completely, and I think it is, it's a timeline thing. You know, you focus more is the closer you get to the elections, but right now, the most important thing is energy and enthusiasm. And I think we can give people, you know, uh, Democratic activists can give people the tools to help them organize and they can guide the overall effort and encourage it. But I don't think you script it too heavily. I don't think you micromanage it. I mean, Republicans are complaining like, oh, the the organizers gave them talking points on issues like yeah, like I've seen some of those. There's some like broad, very broad points about the ACA that are pretty high level. And the questions that are in those town halls are so much more specific than the high level talking points that you see in some of these packets. You know, it's just not, it's coming from the grassroots. It's coming from people organizing themselves, looking online, researching the issues, doing everything you're supposed to do democracy. It's great. And we should, we should applaud it and we should encourage it. But you're right that I don't think we should try to micromanage it in any way. We should do an an update on elections before we get to Anna Marie. Um, The DNC members will vote in Atlanta on Saturday for the next party chair. And uh, right now it's a close race between Tom Perez, friend of the pod, uh, friend of the pod Keith Ellison, and friend of the pod Pete Buttigieg is in third. Um, It's pretty much a close race. It's pretty much a race between Perez and Ellison. Um, It seems like Perez is ahead in the delegate count. Uh, right now, but no one really knows for sure, and we know that no candidate has the majority they need right now. Um, so, uh, then there was a CNN debate last night, which, you know, I have to be honest, I love all these people, they're great. I watched a couple minutes of the CNN debate, and I was like, I don't know, it seems a little boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why, I mean, we, we had them on our podcast, we don't have to go to somewhere else to listen to them. Right, that's, I sort of, I get, the, I get the gist, you know. Yeah. I mean, look, I, either way, I think... I remember you and I being concerned at the outset of this that this could turn nasty between like the Bernie Sanders wing, mm-hmm. the Clinton people, the Obama people, establishment first insurgent. <clears throat> and I think among the candidates, it's been pretty good. Like I think Keith Ellison and Tom Perez went to dinner the other night and they tweeted about how they're friends and will help each other however this ends. Pete Buttigieg was incredibly impressive on our podcast um, and reportedly on CNN too last night. And I think the good news is we have three very good candidates. Um, You know, I personally am supporting Tom Perez because I know him well, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's not, and that's because I have a friendship with him and I think he's great. Not because I think the other two are bad. I think they're also very good. So, you know, however this ends, I think we're going to have a good person in charge of the DNC, which we're kind of in this purgatory phase where we're waiting for a DNC chair to get the DNC up and running to begin planning for the elections in 17 and 18 and 20. Uh, yeah, I said the same thing. I, I'd be very happy if any of the three of those, uh, Ellison Perez or Buttigieg, won this race. Just because I think, I also, I mean, we should not over 
torque how important this job is. It is an important job. It's, it's you know, we're out of power, so it's the head of the Democratic Party for now. But it's not, I mean, this is an organizing job. This is a rebuilding an infrastructure job. This is not like, you know, the biggest thing in the world, meaning it should not split the party apart depending on who wins. You know, like it's, it's going to be okay. Um, we can have bigger fights uh, when we get to primary season, you know, and we're trying to figure out a candidates for office, like, you know, th- those are going to be some serious differences that are policy differences. I think all of these folks are very, very progressive and any one of them would be a good party leader. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, as you mentioned, there are other races in 2017 uh, before we even we've been talking a lot about the, the uh, congressional elections in 2018, the House and the Senate. But in 2017, we're going to have some chances uh, for Democrats to to show up and win here uh the virginia governor race uh the new jersey governor race chris christie is at 18 percent in new jersey and he can't run again so very good chance for democrats to pick up new jersey same thing with virginia really um tom price's seat in georgia tom price is now the health the secretary of health and human services and trump won his district by one point after romney won it by 23 points and so uh, this is a district right outside Atlanta. It's suburban. It's turning blue. So that's going to be very closely watched. I think there's a runoff in, or there's a, the first elections in April, and then the runoff is in June. Um, yeah, the, and it's a, it's like what they call a jungle primary, like we have in California, where whoever win the top two, mm-hmm. or in the top two in the primary, um, proceed to the to a June thirtieth uh, runoff. Um, and there's a Democrat who. John Ossoff, I think his name is, who yes. worked for uh, John, is supported by John Lewis and a bunch of other people who people think is very talented, and he's been getting a lot of attention. Um, a guy at my gym told me that his wife had given money uh, to him, which I was pretty impressed. He knew about the the people were already focused on the Georgia special election, and like there's an opportunity here. It's a hard special elections are are hard to win. Um, to get outside of like the normal partisan breakdown of them, but I think there's a there's an opportunity there, and if people are looking for a place to channel their short-term energy, um, this is a good one. Excellent. Okay, we will. Um, Wait, we forgot. We forgot one. We forgot an important one. <clears throat> What's that? Set set two uh, two other points. One, Virginia governor matters a lot because Virginia is a state where the governor and the state legislature do redistricting. So, who wins this race in seventeen will be the person who does redistricting after the twenty twenty census. So, it's very important we hold on. Oh to that. yes, yes. Second is Delaware has a state Delaware, race man. on Saturday that will decide control the state Senate. And Democrats have held the state Senate for, I think, 44 years. And friend of the pod, Joe Biden, went door to door this weekend uh, to try and encourage people to vote, uh, which is pretty awesome. I love that. God, I love yeah. Joe Biden. Come on our podcast, Joe, Joe, Joe Biden. Get Come on our podcast, Joe Biden. Okay. When we come back, the new host of the brand new podcast uh, from Crooked Media with friends like these, Anna Marie Cox. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. With us on the pod today, MTV's Anna Marie Cox, who is the host of the brand new Crooked Media podcast with friends like these. Anna Marie, welcome to the show. Hey, my brothers in arms. (laughs) We're so excited. Yeah, well, I'm excited too. I actually just recorded the first episode, so um, I'll try to avoid giving spoilers. But Well, so tell us a little bit about the podcast and why you decided to do it. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about a quick preview of the first episode. Well, I mean, you guys, like everyone, I think, who cares about politics and cares about the country, the results of the election floored me. And even more than that, it made me start to think about, like, wait, so how do we survive this? You know, like, the divide in our country is so deep and seemingly, you know, uncrossable. 
Like yeah. we have this, you know, separate spheres of media. We have, you know, these ideologies. We one of the, the poll that that stayed with me that for that the entire election was this poll I think from Gallup that showed that um, people who were supporting Hillary Clinton and people who are supporting Trump said that they didn't agree on basic facts. So how do you have a conversation if you're that divided? And I realized. And and I started talking to friends about it, and I had a very wise friend, actually Krista Tippett, who has her own podcast um, on being, who made the suggestion that when we talk to people who we don't agree with, that maybe we need to give up agreeing. We have to sacrifice the idea that we might take it to some common ground. And rather... Rather than try and find common ground, or con- which is really about convincing people, right? Like, yeah, it's a persuasion question. When we when we say common ground, what we really mean is agree on something. So if you give up trying to find common ground, instead just try and figure out, you know, what is the other person's ground? Like, you know, why do they feel what they feel? I'm not saying you're going to get anywhere. Like, I don't know if that's the solution to... I mean, if your goal is, con- again, convincing people, I don't know if that's going to convince people, but, you know, it maybe maybe made the gap between us a little smaller. Yeah, I mean, it's a good place to begin as any, right? I mean, I think that there's a couple, there's two different questions, you know, some people say, okay, well, how do we, you know, how do we beat Trump in, in 2020, right? Like, do we need to reach his voters? And I always tell people, look, there's a base of his voters that may never leave him. Um, we don't need to convince those people to defeat him. We can put together a majority that includes people who voted for Hillary Clinton and then some of the more reluctant Trump voters that decided very late in the game and then you got a majority. But that is a different question to like, then some people say, okay, well, what about all those Trump support, like the hardcore Trump fans, you know? Um, how do we reach those people? And it's a tough question because I think if if you live in this world where your, your news diet is Breitbart and Fox and all of these news sources and that's how you get your information about the world and you refuse to believe the facts that we believe or we can't agree on a common set of facts like you said I don't know I don't know how we get past that and that has implications forget about just elections that has implications for how we govern how we live together how we how the country survives I mean it's, it's whether you know, or not our elections work right yeah people lose faith in in elections like that's a crisis that's like a <laughs> that is an existential crisis yeah and so yeah so I, I i mean i i my first guest is a pastor from wisconsin who pastors to uh two counties that voted for obama in 08 one of them went obama 08 and 2012 and then trump and one of them went obama barely romney like five hmm. points for romney and then 28 points for trump oh wow yeah and he and I just have a discussion about what the people in his congregations, like why they made the choices they made and what, if anything, would convince them that they should not change their minds, but like I would guess say resist. Like, is there anything that would make them reject Trump having made a choice that they knew was a compromised choice? Because he says his people definitely understood that Trump was a bad guy and they voted for him anyway. And I think that's something that kind of us, you know, on the left – Sometimes we we don't quite get that, you know, this yeah. idea that they made an educated and aware choice for this incredibly, like, I don't want to say flawed. That's almost like too, too generous. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, they weren't snowed. Like they didn't, you know, I think a lot of people feel like, you know, that white working class got fooled. They didn't get fooled. They made They made a conscious choice to vote for this guy. No, I keep thinking about there's something like 20% of voters... Um, had a, a a negative approval of both Trump and Hillary, like so. If you if you didn't like n- either Trump or Hillary, you still voted for Trump by like fifteen twenty points. Yeah, and and that's you know, and we we just talk about that and talk about wh- wh- what's happening for for the people there now. Um, to what extent we can say it's only been a month? Believe it or not, everyone has to remember it's only been a month. Um, but I also want to add, because as you know, because we've talked about it, I'm interested in other kinds of divides, too, for this show. I'm not just interested in, you know, the illustration for the podcast is a is a pussy hat and a MAGA hat. But um, <laughs> very clever. Very clever. It's very clever. It's an incredibly clever cover. I think the person who designed it was probably just just genius. Jesse is a hero. He's designed all of our podcast stuff. Um, but it is it is a clever cover and it does communicate, you know, sort of the central conceit. But we're 
also interested in conversations that would cross other kinds of divides um, and pe- between people. And I want to have conversations about those divides. Like I want to talk to my, you know, friends who are people of color about our differences because, I, I, you know, a, a lot of things happen on the left where we just kind of assume we're all together on the same team, you know. And that's the sort of the real with friends like these part of it is like, yeah, we're all on the same team, but maybe we need to talk about our different experiences and talk about what makes us come to this same general, you know, ideology. Um, but we're here for different reasons and we're getting different things out of it. That's cool. <laughs> I'm really excited about this. Are you good? So what, who, are some of the, who are some of the guests you have? You don't have to say the names of the guests, but what types of guests do you have lined up? Like, I imagine some Republicans. I imagine some, you know. Yeah, Republicans, definitely, but it's not going to be the Never Trumper of the Week. Right. Yeah, that's that, like like we do here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but some Republicans and some actual Trump-supporting Republicans. Um, I also think that I want to talk to, you know, some Muslim people. Like Statistics that show that like, very few Americans actually know a Muslim person. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like that's something that we can do and we can talk about. You know, people of color, of all kinds of color. I also want to talk to, you know, people with different gender identifications, um, people with um, speaking about class, which is another thing on the left that we sometimes kind of skip over but this election showed some fault lines and I think you know people like Tom Frank are obviously like who comes to mind for that and then also you know I'm going to take some suggestions I think perfect Um, and I also am interested in in if if people are willing uh, to talk about some personal uh, insight and some personal experiences about how politics inter relationships and relationships inter politics I was well. I was going to ask. So you, you, your husband is a Republican, and I think I've seen you tweet about um, your in-laws are, are fairly conservative as well. How uh, how do you how do you talk to them about politics? Well, the short answer is is like we we discovered we can't. Uh-huh. Um, this election, the differences are so extreme that what had been some kind of fairly good-natured ribbing and good-natured, oh you silly bleeding heart liberal, oh you hard-hearted you know, Reaganite, that, you know, shit got real. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and we just agreed not to talk about it. And with my husband, what's been interesting is that he actually would not say he's, a, he now does not identify as a Republican. He had his own kind of journey about politics and Trump made him start to question whether or not that ideology was something that really he wanted, that the the conservative side of the spectrum maybe was not as representative of his feelings and beliefs as he thought it was, which I think has happened some to, to other people as well. But I that yeah. that story doesn't get talked about as much. I'm interested in exploring it, not with John, but because that would be weird. <laughs> um, but I think you know, people like Ben Howe, um, who is a writer, conservative writer, who for him. Uh, Trump's rise made him question whether or not, you know, who his allies were and what it meant to be allies with people who supported Trump. Have you found it at all possible to even not talk about Trump with your in-laws? Like, I can't, like, I live in San Francisco, obviously, so I'm not, you know, I live in my own bubble uh, of my choosing, but like, it infects everything. Like, Farhad Manju of the New York Times wrote, wrote his column this week about how he tried to take a week off Trump news and his basic takeaway was it's impossible because he's everywhere. Is it, are you guys able to find other things to talk about? <laughs> oh boy. Has my <laughs> relatively new discovery of sports like helped. <laughs> 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 like I, you know, it's, it's, we, 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 cause you can run out of the weather pretty quickly, you know, but sports is, is still kind of enough material to avoid um, specifically talking about politics. But of course, you know, that is now tough too, right? Like when you have the New England Patriots um, refusing to go to the White House. And also, like, I remember relatively recently, I was visiting them and I got up before anybody else. And I very quickly, when I got up, turned the TV to ESPN. Like, all right, we're going to rather than have Fox and Friends on in the background, we'll have ESPN and it would be, everybody will be safe. And for some reason, like the first thing that was on television when, you know, my in-laws came down for coffee was a discussion about the NCAA pulling out of um, March Madness in North Carolina. So, <laughs> 
you know. It is everywhere. It's everywhere. And, you know, I mean, something that I truly believe is that it usually is not, like, that productive to talk about, you know, extreme disbeliefs um, with people that you love because you never are just talking about the area you disagree with, you know, disagree about. You're also talking about your relationship. And it brings up fears of acceptance and fears of loss and, you know, like if you have an argument with someone who you really care about, you're also arguing about your relationship and the health of that relationship. So, I mean, the whole concept of the show is kind of about I'm not going to be talking to my in-laws or my husband. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> Unless you're really low on guests and you're just. <laughs> yeah, right. Because those those relationships are complicated and they're always about more than politics. Whereas, like, I think it is possible, you know, to start with the disagreement and then develop a relationship, you know. And yeah that is maybe how we're going to have to work. And I do think this is the way forward. I mean, I, I don't know what it's a way forward to. I hope that my mind and my eyes and my heart are open to the people that I talk to as much as their hearts and minds are open to me. I think that one of the things that will make, hopefully make this adventure, you know, this conversation worth having is I, I want to give up on my own grip of, of being right to, to the extent that I can, which is to say I want to listen with, you know, if I, if I come into this hoping that they might be persuadable, then I have to at least open my mind to being persuaded, you know, which is tough. Um, it is. It's really great of you to do this because my reaction to the election has been the exact opposite. Like I have retreated further. Like I want to have – I want to just insulate myself with people who agree with me and not – It'd just be angry. And so, like, kudos to you. Hey, you can be both. Get, get you a podcast that can do both. That's, <laughs> this is a question, though, is um, how do you see the sort of the town halls the, and, and the protests fit into this, right? Because I know you've, I, I saw some people trolling you that, like, you admitted to joining anti, MTV News's Anna Marie Cox admitted to joining anti Trump protests. It's like, yeah, you, like, said it on TV. You were proud of it. <laughs> I said um, it on TV at yeah. a show hosted by a former congressman. Um, so, you know, I think the divide between activism and media is pretty thin. Um, but I also, I mean, I, I would say like, I'm not an activist. I'm a citizen. Um, I went to a protest specifically about the travel ban and, mm-hmm. uh, cause that is something I felt strongly about. I think these town halls and these travel ban protests, what I find encouraging and, and hopeful about them is the degree to which people are being drawn to them out of. Uh, personal experience and communicating that personal experience. Yes, I totally agree. Because I think that's also, if if we make our project about reaching people with the potential of changing their minds, um, statistics are not going to be as helpful as stories. And yeah. those most powerful moments we've seen from the town halls so far, I mean, think about what they are. They're, they're all miniature stories, you know. Yeah, and it's so much easier to have empathy for someone else in their position and, and, you know, the ground that they stand on when you hear them talk about themselves and you see that the motivation is, you know, about their own lives and their own families and not some, you know, purely political motivation. And I do think the Trump administration has underestimated the degree to which um, the people that they want to oppress have deep roots and relationships in the communities of America especially in cities, in, in blue cities and red states. You know, I've told this story a couple of times, but I was having coffee the other day and I happened to overhear the two women next to me. This is like, you know, a pour over coffee shop, hipstery place in uh, northeast Minneapolis. And they were talking about, not they were talking about the travel ban, they were talking about the uh, deportations and immigration order, um, sanctuary city order. And they were talking about some friend of theirs who was married to somebody who had overstayed his visa and was now facing deportation. And, you know, one of them was very upset about this. And it was one of those things, like, you don't realize how how interconnected people's lives are. Like, you don't realize, like, this is not just about, like, low-wage low labor, you know? Right. Very much. It's, it's complex and nuanced. I mean, Obama always used to talk about this gap between how people of diverse views, backgrounds, beliefs treat each other within their communities, right, which is quite well, and they get along quite well, versus how you think people treat each other by 
looking at national politics and what we see on TV and how they treat each other on Twitter and how they treat each other in cable news shows. And, you know, what do you do about sort of reducing this gap? Because if everyone wasn't getting along in their local communities and neighborhoods, you'd say, okay, well, we're, we're a lost cause. You know, everyone's at war with each other. But the fact that people are getting along in communities and are treating each other so well in real life but aren't when it's some stranger on Twitter or, you know, when you're yelling at someone in, in Washington, you know, that's that's a huge problem. And I don't know. I don't know where you uh, I don't know where you narrow that gap. I mean, my belief is that the other kind of uh, part, thing that has to be a part of the way forward is getting offline, you know, yeah. is getting into our communities. I, I think Obama's final speech. I know how much you guys loved it. <laughs> I loved it, too. And, you know, the the most compelling parts of it were if you have a problem with this, get out, you know, go organize. Right. And I think, you know, the degree to which we survive as a country, and I actually am not even talking about policy, right? I'm not even talking about which kind of policy succeeds. I am talking more about that existential crisis of whether or not we can even talk and trust each other. Um, We need to be of service to each other. Um, we need to be out in our communities. Like I have made this joke on Twitter a thousand times, but you know, one of the most compelling things you could probably do to both advance your own self-care and advance the interests of the nation right now is go be a dog walker at your local shelter. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be self-care for you because dogs, awesome. And also yes. it's going to put you in touch with your community. And it's going to get you out and you're going to, you, you may run across people because, you know, lots of people love animals. And you may meet people who you don't realize you have different opinions, but you share this one thing and you're going to make connections. You could that's do, awesome. You could do other stuff besides walk dogs. That's a personal favorite. But like, I think get out in your community and start being of service to someone, especially a stranger, in whatever way you have the most passion about, whether that is, you know, soup kitchen, mentoring, tutoring visiting the elderly, whatever it is, get out there and start doing it. And you will develop, you will develop the resilience for your own sake. That is extraordinarily good advice. We are so excited about this podcast. Everyone, please get the teaser is on iTunes right now. So you can go subscribe right now. And then uh, the first episode is going to drop tomorrow, right? It's uh, dropping tomorrow. Dropping tomorrow. All right. With friends like these, go sign up and um, Anna Marie, come back on and we'll keep talking about all this stuff. All right. Thanks. All right, take care. Thank you. Thank you so much to Anna Marie Cox for joining us again today. Go subscribe to With Friends Like These. Go subscribe to Pod Save the World. And of course, um, rate us and review us on iTunes. Uh, Dan, I'll talk to you later. All right, bye. Bye.